0: this morning. It's always fun to do that, and sometimes we'll do that just to, just to look at your expressions, because it's kind of like, what's going on? What's happening? What's happening? Now, um, today is a special day. We're gonna, we're, obviously, we're in the series on mystery, exploring the sacraments, and uh, we're going to dive into one of the greatest mystery... Um, teachings, I guess, of all the sacraments. And this—we're going today we're going to delve into the Passover. And uh, I've got, uh, I sp- Kim and I spent most of the day yesterday looking for that. <laughs> that is a horseradish root. And you know, you would think as much as we eat steaks and stuff like that, that there would be more of those around, but there's not. You can find a lot of prepared stuff, but we finally found it yesterday afternoon after about a hundred miles of traversing around the county. And um, we found there was three at the Wind dixie and Blue Water. We got one of them, so. Um, but I want to kind of open this up today, and, and I'm going to teach first. We'll do some worship later on in the service. But what I want to do is just kind of teach through the Passover because as we unpack the mystery of communion, when you look at the Passover, you'll see that actually this is where our communion is derived from. What we call communion comes out of the Passover. So let's kind of look at it. Everybody okay with that? Everybody take a deep breath and go, okay, everything's good. (sighs) It's all good. It's all good. So um, rabbis through the centuries have known that scriptures contain truths that are hidden beneath the surface of interpretation. In other words, Jesus himself taught in parables. You know, you read the Bible, you understand that, and their true meaning have had to be sought out so that we can understand them. And it's the same way with this series, because what I want to do with this has helped you discover biblical truths that have been hidden or been a mystery, but yet they're in plain sight. Thousands of years ago, God commanded the Jewish people to celebrate the Passover. Jesus himself celebrated the holiday. Every year and today, millions of Jewish people around the world gather each spring for a Passover meal. And despite its biblical importance, most followers of a Christ remain unaware of the Christian significance taint contained within this Jewish festival. There are a lot of people today, especially in, in, in this day and age, there are a lot of people that look at the Bible and go, well, that's Old Testament. And so that's really not for today. And so we're just going to stick with the New Testament. The problem with that is that, that God gave us the whole meta-narrative, Genesis to Revelation, and we need to be unpacking because you cannot understand the New Testament without, without having an understanding of the old. And so we're going to be looking today at an ancient festival that God implemented when Israel was delivered out of Egyptian bondage, and he instituted the Passover that night before they were to leave Egypt the, de- the next day. And today, you're going to see some things that are hidden in the Passover that are going to make a lot of more sense as we go through this teaching today. So here's my prayer this morning. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to try not to talk too fast uh, so that it gets lost in my redneckery as, as I talk, Um, but hopefully you're in U version and you can follow along in the notes. And if you want to save those notes in there, you can. You can refer to them later. Um, So here's the deal. We're exploring the sacraments. We're going to look more closely at the Jewish Passover. The Passover is the account of God's redemption of the nation of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt that happened thousands of years ago. You look at Exodus 5 through 13 and you'll see the story. But as we look at this ancient festival of redemption... You're also going to see that when God brought his people out of bondage in Egypt and instituted Passover, he also wove into the fabric of the Passover celebration, something that is very important for you and I today in the 21st century. And that is a picture of a far greater redemption, a redemption of all the world from the Egypt of sin through the Passover lamb, who we know as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, okay, in the gospels. You remember that Jesus sent Peter and John ahead of him to prepare the Passover meal. In Luke 22, uh, Jesus sent Peter and John and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. And they asked, where do you want us to do that? And then Jesus becomes very specific. He's sending them into town and they they go, where do you want us to do this? And he said, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, there's going to be a guy carrying a pitcher of water and he's going to meet you. Follow him to his house. And as he enters the house, say to him, The teacher asked, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? Verse 12, he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. And they went off, found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Now, right then and there, I could actually step over here and teach for a few minutes on the proper use of the the prophetic gifts in in Scripture. Because here you have... Jesus speaking about something that's going to happen in the future, it happens exactly how he says it to the detail. Guy's going to meet you. He's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. You follow him to his house. When you say to him this, he's going to answer this. And this is exactly what happens. Unfortunately, too many times with the prophetic, we have people that go, God said he's going to do this in your life. And you wait, and you wait, and it never happens. Or, you know, it's a very generic type of thing. Here it's very specific. Jesus said, do this. They did it. It happened exactly as he said it was going to happen. And when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together. And here's what Jesus said, verse 15. I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, because of the brevity of the gospels, most Christians don't realize that the Passover actually involves four cups. Or one cup that is that you drink from four different times throughout the meal. And these cups serve as the outline for the Passover meal. You say, well, is this really going to make any sense? Yes, just hang tight. Just hang tight. It's going to make a lot of sense as we get further into this. Each uh, cup that the Jews would drink from has a different name and symbolism that is associated with it. So the first cup is called the cup of sanctification. This cup sanctifies all that follows in the Passover observance. It's almost like our when we sit down for a meal, we pray before the meal. It's kind of similar to that, only it's a little bit more in detail. Um, a special prayer is offered during that first cup. Now, once that prayer is said, and I'm not going to say the prayer, I'm just going to give you the outline today. The meal is now blessed, it is now sanctified, and the Passover, or the Seder meal, begins. The meal is eaten in a specific order, it involves specific elements, and this is the meal that Jesus and his disciples would have eaten at the Last Supper. In other words, it is the story of Exodus, of the Exodus passed down from generation to generation. And they're still passing it. They still pass it on to their children today. So there are six courses. And I have them up here on the, on the, on the platform. I know you probably can't see it all. I'm not going to eat this stuff because eating this and trying to preach is not a good thing. Uh, especially when, you get, when it gets down to the whole teaspoon of horseradish. <clears throat> We probably would have the benediction and go on to the house after that. (laughs) But here's the first course. Now, the first course involves taking greens, parsley, if you will, and a bowl of salt water. So what they do is they take the greens and they dip it in the salt water and then they eat it. And the symbolism behind this is that greens represent life, but the salt water represents tears. The greens dipped in the salt water and they're eaten together to remind us that the life of bondage and the life of slavery is a life that is full of tears. That is a symbolism behind that first course in the Passover meal. Second course, horseradish. Raw horseradish. All right. Full teaspoon. You take a full teaspoon, you take some unleavened bread, and you put a full teaspoon on here, and you eat it whole. Who's going to try this? Anybody this morning? Johnny Moses, you want some of that? You want another? It's symbolism today, folks. All right, so here's the deal. What happens, how many of you have ever had raw horseradish? What happens when you get too much of it? You cry. Your sinuses open up, probably would be a cure for COVID, I imagine. <clears throat> all right so you take a full teaspoon of horseradish eaten with the unleavened bread and it makes you cry the tears are a graphic reminder of the tears that were shed during slavery in egypt if you go back and you read the exodus story you understand that they for f- over 400 years they're praying they're crying out to god for deliverance god said i heard i have heard the tears he tells moses i have heard the cries and i've seen the tears of my people that's what the horseradish represents. God hears the cries, he sees the tears, and it was during this particular part of the meal that Jesus would have said, I tell you the truth in Matthew 26, one of you will betray me. They're at, you know, we're, we're jumping ahead now, we're in the Passover meal, Jesus is looking at his disciples, they this part of the meal, Jesus says, somebody's gonna betray, me. one of you in this room is gonna betray me. One of you has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. Now here's the problem with that statement every one of them in the room would have eaten from that bowl and so when he says one of you they're all going is it me is it me is it me and peter finally goes over to jesus and says hey he looks at john and says who's he talking about so john leaned over and asked jesus lord who is it and jesus says this it is the one to whom i give the bread i dip in the bowl and when he dipped it he gave it to judas When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered him, and Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. It's during that time of horseradish and unleavened bread, the bitterness and tears, it was at that point in the meal that Judas leaves the group to betray Jesus. There's that part of that mystery that's becoming a little bit more clearer when it comes to what's going on with this. You say, well, this is thousands of years before Jesus Jesus is now living the reality of, of the thing of the of the whole symbolism here. The next course is an apple mixture. It's apple, nuts, raisin, honey, and cinnamon. This is actually very good. It's actually very good. Kim made it last night, and it is very good. But what does it represent? The apple mixture represents mortar used to make bricks for Pharaoh in Egypt. It's actually made into a. It's like a paste type thing. So why at that point, why would there be something sweet if it, if it represents the toil and the bricks for the bricks that, that Pharaoh was requiring them to make? Why something sweet? Because here's, here's what God wants us to understand. Because even our difficulties, our toils are sweet when we know that our redemption is coming soon. If we know that there's there's hope, if we know that there's something out there, even our difficulties can have a little bit of sweetness to them because we know there's an end in sight. That's the the significance of the apple mixture. Eating with unleavened bread, the sweetness of the apple mixture makes the bitterness of the horseradish go away. Now, after church, if somebody wants to come up here and take a big old tablespoon of of horseradish and then a spoonful of the apple mixture, you can prove me right on this. But right now, I've got to finish this teaching. But then the next course is a reminder course, and it is the root, the horseradish root. It's a bitter root, as we know. This reminds us that the root of life itself can often be bitter, but we have hope in the life to come. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have hope that is eternal that one day we're going to leave this life and we're going to be with Jesus in eternity. So we have the hope of eternal life, all right? So what is the hope of the Jewish nation? The hope of the Jewish nation is they're awaiting the Messiah. But those of us that follow Jesus Christ, we're not awaiting the Messiah because we believe and know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So our hope has already been here and he's preparing a place for you and I so that we can look to the future when we're, when we're with him in eternity. Amen. All right, you know you guys can say amen and stuff like that during the time we teach you. Okay, I just, just checking. I know we really threw you a curve this morning by only having one song, and you know, but still, take a deep breath, relax. We're good. Next one, the next course. A brown hard-boiled egg. Now, I could throw this at somebody to confirm that it's hard-boiled, but I won't. This is called the Hagiga. It's the same name that is given to the sacrifice made at the temple during the Passover. The egg represents that sacrifice. Now, in modern times today, the egg is peeled, it's sliced, and it's dipped in the salt water, which represents tears, to mourn the sacrifice that is no more. In other words, after the temple was destroyed in AD 70, sacrifices in, in Jewish worship ended. And so the egg, sliced egg in the tears, represents the morning of the sacrifice that is no more in the temple. And then the other piece of this, the next course would be this it's the lamb. Now, we have a shank bone here. Uh, I cooked this yesterday. And uh, as you can see, there's not much left of it. But I had to cut the bone out of it. The lamb. The lamb bone. Jesus and the disciples would have eaten lamb at the Passover. However, since the destruction of the temple, rabbis no longer allow the eating of lamb during the Passover meal. Most of the time, chicken is used in place of it. But in place of the lamb on the Seder plate, a lamb shank bone rests to remind us of the central importance of the lamb since the first Passover in the land of Egypt in Exodus 12. But the lamb itself, and this is very significant. The lamb itself is now sadly absent from Jewish worship. Now remember, they're still awaiting the Messiah. They're still awaiting the Messiah. In ancient Jewish worship, though, the Passover lamb was sacrificed to make atonement for the sins of the people. And for the lamb to be to be declared worthy of sacrificing, a process had to take place. In other words, they would choose the lamb five days before the Passover meal. They would inspect the lamb. They would, they would pull back that. They would look at over every inch of the lamb to ensure that it didn't have any kind of blemishes on it. The lamb could have, could, could have no broken bones whatsoever. It had to be a perfect, perfect specimen for the lamb to be considered worthy to be used as a sacrifice. This particular process reminds me of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb that the Jewish people rejected. He was sacrificed to make atonement for the sins of the people, which is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Jesus was chosen five days before Passover. What is that called? The triumphant entry. Jesus was without spot or blemish. He was sinless. He had no broken bones. Contrary to Roman custom, they would always break the bones of someone crucified to make death come a little bit quicker. But they got to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't have to break his bones. they thinking, well, he's already there. That's not a coincidence. That's a reality to fulfill prophecy in the Old Testament that says he will have no broken bones. So they didn't have to break his legs to expedite his death. But then he's a sinless, spotless lamb. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. Pilate actually said of Jesus, when he looked at him, he looked at the Jewish people and leaders of the religious day of that day, and he said, I find no fault in him. So whereas the lamb is suspiciously, sadly absent from Jewish Passover, he is very much active and alive in the Christian Passover because Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Again, the mystery. Which brings us to the second cup. The second cup is the cup of plagues and iniquity. Full cup, the cup of complete joy. Though we celebrate what God has done for us as believers, our happiness, and even as Jewish people, our happiness is not complete as long as others are still in the bondage. We diminish the wine in our cups as we recall the plagues visited upon the Egyptians and express our sorrow that not all people have experienced God's love and freedom in their life. So what the Jewish people would do is they would take their finger and they would stick it in the cup 10 times. And each time they would remember the plagues. One time for blood, one time for hail, one time for locusts, one time for frogs, one time for lice, one time for flies, the pestilence plague, the boils, the darkness, and the last one, the slaying of the firstborn of all of Egypt. After that had taken place, then they would be a blessing and they would drink from the second cup. After they had diminished the cup by 10 drops, then they would drink the cup. Now the 10th plague is the worst plague of all. But Israel was not automatically exempt or immune from the death angel's wrath. To escape death, the Jews had to apply the blood of the sacrificial lamb to the doorpost of their house. They had to have prepared it, the process had to be taking place, and they would have to kill the lamb, take the blood, and they would have to smear it over the doorpost of their homes. The death angel came and the Bible says there was great weeping in the land from the lowest of livestock to Pharaoh's household. But death, the death angel passed over every house that had the blood applied to it. In other words, redemption came to Israel by the blood of the original sacrificial lamb at Passover time. Now, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, by faith, we apply the blood of his sacrifice to the doorpost of our heart. I am saved from death. You are saved from death. Now, death passes over you and I as well because we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. The significance of all of this comes into play. For God so loved me so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you could put your name in there as well. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Now on the table, there's called what is known as a matzotosh. It's a bag for unleavened bread. In the bag, there are three pieces of bread. Try not to mess this up this morning. It's interesting to me that thousands of years before Jesus, this thing is required, and there are three pieces of bread in the Matsutosh bag. Three pieces. Unleavened bread. Matsutosh, the three pieces in one bag represents unity. Three pieces in one bag? Three in one. Trinity, maybe. Now, matzah, all of it, is unleavened. Has no yeast in it. Um, It's striped. As you can see, it's got stripes on it. And it's got little tiny holes in it, so it's pierced. Leaven in Scripture, yeast, is symbolic of sin in our life. Unleavened means it's without sin, without yeast. Unleavened? Jesus was sinless. Striped, Jesus was whipped and beaten. Pierced, nails in his hands and his feet, spear in his side. The second piece of matzah, not the first, not the third, the second piece of matzah is taken from the bag. You take it, You break it in half and you wrap it back up in the bag. Oh, by the way, the bag is made of linen. Half of it is wrapped in a linen bag. It's called the afikoman, which means it comes later. At the Jewish Passover, this Afiqoman is given, is taken by the head of the household, and is hidden in the house somewhere. They hide it outside of the celebration or or the room of celebration, and is hidden or buried, if you will. And toward the end of the meal, everything stops, and the children are sent out to search for the the, the bread of affliction. And the child that finds the bread of affliction receives a special reward usually some coins or something like that. All right? Everybody tracking so far? All right, so there are three schools of thought on the three pieces that are in the Matsatosh. Some say that it represents the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others say that it is the worship in Israel, which is the priesthood, the Levites, and the people of Israel. I submit to you that knowing what we know and how we understand scripture now, that it is not the patriarchs, that it is not the worship in Israel, but it is possibly and probably and most likely it is about the Trinity, the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If the matzah represents the patriarchs, then why is the second piece broken, buried, and brought back? Okay, if the matzah represents the worship in Israel, then why is the second piece, not the first or the third, why is it broken, buried, and brought back? But if it actually represents the triune Godhead, then the second piece that is broken, buried, and brought back makes perfect sense since the second person of the Trinity is Jesus Christ who was broken, wrapped in linen, buried, and resurrected on the third day. (laughs) Mystery uncovered this morning. Of all the teaching that I have done in forty years of pastoring, this is my favorite because it just explodes in us when we think about the way God weaves things in together throughout history. Thousands of years before Jesus, He puts this stuff in place, and people have been separate, They've been celebrating it every year for thousands of years, thinking that it's something going to happen. But yet, there's this mystery. The head of the house then takes the bread out of the bag after the kid brings it back, blesses it. Then he breaks off small pieces. He breaks off small pieces. And he passes the piece to each person at the table. If this sounds familiar to you, it's at this point in the Passover meal, according to Mark and Paul, that Jesus took some bread, gave thanks for it, then he broke it in pieces, And gave it to his disciples, saying, This, Take eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now right where you are this morning, take your elements and take the bread out. You say, Well, we've never done it like this before, Phil. I know. It's okay. It's okay. Take the bread. Let's lift it up this morning. All over the house. Lift it up. Now break it. Father, we lift up this bread of affliction this morning. We lift up knowing that it is representative of the second person of the Trinity. The one who said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And I bless this this morning. Shall we eat together? Now remember, hard getting that unleavened bread down. (laughs) There are four cups. The meal actually ends after the second cup. But even though with the eating of the bread of affliction, that ends the Passover meal. But the Passover is not over yet. It's not complete yet. Because then we have the third cup. The third cup comes directly after the meal. It's the cup of blessing and redemption. The third cup looks backward toward the blessing that has come through God's redemption. In other words, that that's already been done. The Jews look back to their deliverance from Egypt. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we look back to the day that we were delivered from the power of sin and death in our life through the blood of Jesus. So we look back for that. But the third cup not only looks back, it looks forward. Okay? Okay. To the blessing and the redemption that will come with the Messiah. In other words, that which is to come. The Jews are still waiting. But what are we waiting for? As Christ followers, we're waiting for what? The second coming of Jesus. We're waiting for his his second coming. His his return to us. Remember the Bible tells us that, that after supper, Jesus took another cup of wine. Which is that third cup. The cup of blessing and redemption. And he instituted the new covenant that was prophesied by Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Once again, you can't understand New Testament gospel without an understanding of the Old Testament. The new covenant is actually foretold in the Old Testament. So here's what Jeremiah says, verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is not a covenant that is written on stone tablets, but the new covenant is written on the hearts of men and women through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a binding covenant that never goes away. That is the new covenant. That is the assurance. It's written on the hearts of men. And Jesus announces in that moment that the promise that they had been waiting on, the promise of a new covenant, is now present. He says this to them. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul adds this in First Corinthians 11, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we look backward to the blessing and redemption that has already come through Jesus' death on the cross. And you look forward to the blessing and redemption that will come when he returns. And Jesus also looks forward to this day, promising the disciples, each of you drink from this cup, for I tell you the truth, I will not drink it again until the day I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So now, take the cup. Take the cup. This is where we get our communion, right here the bread of affliction that we've just taken, and the third cup of the Passover. Let's lift the cup. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we honor each of you. But specifically, thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Because your blood washes away every stain of our sin. It doesn't cover our sins. It washes them away, and they are never remembered against us again and we give you praise and thanksgiving God for your plan of redemption for all of our lives through the blood of Jesus. Shall we drink together? Worship team's coming to the platform now. Let's stand all over the house. We're not finished. Woo. We're not finished. If you go to the Jewish Passover in someone's home, you'll see an empty chair in a place setting at the table. It's called the place of Elijah. At the close of the Passover meal, the father will instruct one of the family members to open the door for Elijah. In a lot of ways, this is a sad reminder of where the Jewish people are, because It is the awaiting of the Messiah that the prophet Elijah foretold. But for those of us that know Jesus, understand this from scripture. The Bible teaches us that John the Baptist was a New Testament prophet that came in the spirit of Elijah. And it is John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah that made this declaration in John 1. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, we, in, in, we don't have an empty place setting. We don't have an empty chair because we're not awaiting the promised Messiah because we know that he is already here and among us and provided redemption and healing and deliverance and freedom for every one of us. Um, Now, um, just imagine, imagine in your mind, if you can, for just a moment, imagine how the disciples must have felt after celebrating the Passover year after year after year, and then they're in this room upstairs that night, and they're seeing and experiencing the exact actual fulfillment of prophetic, messianic prophecy. God wove into the ancient ceremony the actual story of the redemption of mankind, not just Israel. Israel. The actual story of redemption of mankind. We have been set free from the bondage of sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You and I partake in God's redemption today. If we have Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we by faith apply the blood of God's Lamb, Jesus, to the doorpost of our heart. Come on, somebody just shout hallelujah in the house. We have been forgiven this morning. And we're free. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, death has passed over us. That's why the scriptures say death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear father, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then the Bible tells us this that Jesus and the disciples begin to sing and give praise to God before going out to the Mount of Olives, which is the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where Jesus was betrayed, was taken into custody. The meal concludes with the singing of psalms of praise. The Hillel psalms in in Psalms are Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. We've been praying through the psalms every Sunday this year. Guys, I just want to ask you this morning, those of us that follow Jesus Christ, how can we do anything but praise him for what he's done for you and me? When we uncover the mystery in the Passover, that the center focus of of, of the Passover is actually the sacrificial lamb that we know is Jesus Christ. How can we do anything knowing that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, washed away? Never remembered against you and I again. You said, well, what about this thing that's in my mind? Let me tell you something. If the enemy's on your shoulder going, well, remember when you did this, you just look at him and go, you know what? You may remember that, and I may remember it, but the one who counts does it, and that's Jesus. He doesn't remember it. So this is how the Passover concludes. There's a blessing, and it goes this way. This cup is in gratitude for the freedom God has given us through his death on the cross and in thankfulness for his resurrection, which assures us of eternal life. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Amen. And I say this morning with the psalmist in Psalm 107 and verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so in this house. Come on, give Jesus some praise in the house and let's worship the Lord.